Amen. Thank you, Wes. Appreciate that. Great song that we had to lift our hearts to the Lord in worship before we get started. We want to do something a little different here this morning, and that is uh, Jake and I are going to sort of tag team a little bit, so uh, you, you won't fall asleep because there'll be two different voices here <laughs> and lots of movement. So uh, we'll, keep you, uh, we'll keep you guessing as to what's going to take place. I'm just going to take a few minutes up front here to introduce our new study, which will be in the Gospel of John. And one of the things I wanted you to know about, or one of the things that as pastors we wanted to do was to let you know about some good resources that you could study along with us. And uh, one of the resources that we're using would be D.A. Carson's commentary, the pillar commentary on the Gospel of John. I don't know if, we, there we go, there they are. Listen there, I wanted to get the pictures, but we didn't, sometimes you learn better when you see the cover of a, of a book than when you just see a title. But we're using the Gospel of John uh, written by D.A. Carson, the Pillar Commentary Series. We're working with the NIV Application Commentary by Gary Burge. And these two guys are probably the leading writers with regard to Gospel of John studies. And then another one that uh, I have benefited from is the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. It's the InterVarsity Press Dictionary Series that I think is very, very helpful. It's kind of like, you know, you have a, you have a question about something, you just look it up, alphabetical, it's there for you. So that's a good resource for you to uh, include in your library or as you study along with us. So I thought I'd take the format here and just in this introduction by, you know, you probably have seen those blog posts or you see often things, four things you need to know about X, Y, or Z, or five things you need to know about A, B, and C. So here we go. Four things you need to know that are helpful for you with regard to your study of the Gospel of John. And the first would be this. John, the son of Zebedee, and brother of James wrote this gospel. All right, so we, we want to know a little bit about the author. Who is writing? Who is the author of this particular piece of New Testament literature? Now, John didn't sign his work. There's no real, you know, definite place we can go and say, this is John's signature, and we know absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt that he wrote this, epistle, this gospel. But internal evidence widely supports that he wrote it. The church tradition affirms that it was John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, who wrote it. And you say, well, why is that important? Why do I need to know who wrote the, the gospel? Why do I need to know who wrote this book? Well, it affects how we think about the book's background and its purpose when we know a little bit about who the author is. So who is this guy? Who is John, the son of Zebedee? Well, what we know about him is that he, first of all, was Jewish, all right? And he understood, he quoted the Old Testament rather extensively. He was very familiar with Old Testament feasts like Passover, tabernacles. He knew the customs of the day and of the people. And he was very acquainted with the expectation that the Jews had of a coming Messiah. And being from Palestine, he knew the lay of the land and he knew all the neighborhood tensions, you know how it is, like somebody's from the area, they know the lay of the land, they know all the tensions. And that is exactly what John did. He wrote as an eyewitness, probably somewhere between 80 and 85 AD, he wrote from the city of Ephesus, this, this gospel. I keep wanting to say it's a, an epistle, forgive me for that, the gospel. John 21, 24 to 25, John writes this at the end, this is the disciple that was referenced by Christ, who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. 
And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. The interesting thing about John, who wrote this, is he's the one that is referred to as the disciple who Jesus loved. You think, boy, that's a pretty, pretty bold statement, isn't it? And you wonder, well, why was it? Why was John referred to in that way? And I don't know that I can answer that with an affirmative or with a definite kind of answer, other than the fact that John was just a guy of spiritual character and integrity, and he was a man for the moment. He was the man for the moment, and he indeed worked very closely with Christ the Messiah. Number two, the second thing you need to know, the gospel is a true story about the life and work of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's, that's obvious, isn't it? It's a true story about the life and work of Jesus. Well, you know, there's not many people or not everyone believes that these gospels are true accounts. You know, many think that they are just good fiction, good historical fiction. But what we are trying to affirm and what we want to declare is that this is a true story. This is a story, yes, but a true one. The gospel is a good news message. And this good news message is a narrative that has plots and characters and episodes and tensions. But what we want to affirm and what you will see in the preaching and the teaching of this book is that this book is a unified message. It's not been stitched together or glued together with Elmer's glue or whatever. And so now we have this this papyri or this document that we sort of have have confidence in. No, this is something given to us by the Spirit of God in which we can have great confidence. And this focus in this book is on the life and deeds of Christ from his birth to his earthly ministry through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I like this because, you know, a story is biased, isn't it? Aren't they? Most stories are biased or have a spin to them. And the gospel has a legitimate bias to it. And we're acknowledging that. And that is this. One writer says, they are not impartial accounts. They all enthusiastically endorse Jesus and are quite negative in their treatment of any opposition to Jesus. So we're enthu- you know, so the story is written strongly, affirmingly from the perspective that Jesus is the Christ. And we have no qualms declaring that and affirming that with you as our church family and saying, believe it. Enjoy it. Rest in it. This is our great and glorious hope. Third, John is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are known as the synoptic gospels. And you might think, well, what does that mean? That's pretty 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 intuitive there, I think, and that is that they, they're very similar, cover the same kind of material, go over some of the same detail, follow a similar outline. But the Gospel of John does not do that. And so John is not a synoptic gospel. For example, there are no narrative parables. There's no account of a transfiguration. There's no record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. There's no report of Jesus casting out demons. There's no report of Jesus' temptations. So his gospel is a little different. But he includes things that are unique and that would not be recorded elsewhere. So, so there's that give and take, but there's enough difference here that for that reason, we don't include the Gospel of John in that synoptics. covers just a different aspect or different feature of the life of Christ. And finally, let me end with this. The Gospel of John is for a go-and-tell church. 
John states his purpose in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, the gospel is written in light of this verse, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This gospel is for our go and tell, great commission, outward facing kind of work. This is for us to be evangelistic. And we hope as a church family, you will take this gospel and be as evangelistic with it as you can possibly be. In contrast, 1 John was written with a purpose to encourage Christians. John there says, these things I have written to you who believe. You see the difference? 1 John 5.13, these things are written to you who believe. Whereas in John 20, verses 30 and 31, I'm writing these things so you may believe. You see the difference? So the books have different purposes. The gospel is for your belief. The epistle is for those who have believed to encourage you. So John writes so that we'll know Jesus is God. That we'll understand that he is the Lamb of God. And that This story is going to move toward the cross and toward the resurrection and culminate in the triumphant work of the obedient Son of God. So, Creekside Church family, let's study this together. You know, it's not just us preaching and the pastors who are going to be preaching this this gospel to you. It's not just us who need to be digging in and who will be digging in. But study with us. Get the commentaries. Get the, get the resources. You know, dig in. Read this, uh, this gospel as often as you can. Study hard. And then they say this. Be willing to wrestle with some of the difficult stuff that you'll find in the gospel. And let the text lead you to a good and appropriate conclusion. And let's fulfill the book's purpose by being a go and tell church. And in order to do that, I think there's one last slide. I don't know if you have it up there. But let me direct your attention to this website. It's called the 21dayjourney.com. And friends of mine from, from a church in Virginia that I was involved in, we used this gospel as an evangelistic tool. And what we did was this. We would invite people to take a 21-day journey with us and read the gospel together with us. And so when you get onto that website, you will see the 21 days laid out You'll see questions that you can study um, the gospel with your friends who you're inviting to take the journey. And just study the Bible together with those who are curious or who want to know about Christ and see what God will do. And maybe we'll have a couple of uh, baptisms in the very near future or see the fruit of the gospel yield itself here quite uh, productively. I'm going to turn it over to Jake at this point. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jack. I... uh... I honestly almost reached for the blue sweater vest this morning. And I'm thinking that would have been just too much. But anyway, so uh, thanks for opening up the, the series in the book of John. You know, we get a, a chance as pastors to get that kind of wisdom all the time when we talk about 
why do we do things here? Why do we preach things here? In case you're brand new and you walk into a church that understands that we are biblically teaching, we are walking through books of the Bible. We just finished a three-month series in the book of Nehemiah. And when you start out in the book of Nehemiah and you think, boy, it's going to go for how long? We don't necessarily know how long it's going to go. We're under no pressure. We're under no directive to be told we have to tie our calendar in on these dates or these times. And so... Uh, it, it flew by, didn't it? It seems like, you know, we had a lot of people walk in and say, you know, I didn't know those aspects. I didn't know about those aspects in Nehemiah. And they can walk out feeling like, wow, I feel encouraged. I know a little bit about the book. And and so um, if you missed that, you know, all our, our messages are online. They're somewhere online. I've never looked for them, but, uh, but they're on there, I guess. You know what I mean? Okay, so uh, um, but anyway, they're, uh, they're on the, our website that's being developed. And so I'm excited about these uh, these few verses here. I don't want to blow it. I, I feel like if this gets messed up, it's because of me. Because these are some of the richest verses. When you look at the book of John, you're thinking, this is an exciting book to study. Because there's so much in there that just pops out in story form. I mean, it's, it almost unfolds like a movie. And there's been so many times you can tell somebody who's a new believer, hey, where do I start studying? Go to the book of John. Look at this. But it's interesting, when they read the first few verses, they can get lost. And if you're a new believer, or maybe you've been a believer for a while, and you're honest with yourself, and it's okay. This is the place to ask those hard questions. We never want you to walk in here and fake it. Don't do that. But I want you to look at these first few verses, the first five verses, and imagine in your mind, this isn't a test we're going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to picture in your mind, what do you think John means? When these first five verses pop out. Here we are. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. I'll just read them all and then we'll break them down. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything made that not, I'm sorry, one more time on verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you read that for the first time, would that almost seem a little confusing? Go back to verse 1. When you look at that and you think, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was w- with God, and the Word was God. And you think to yourself, what does that mean? I mean, d- God is a God of clarity. He's a God of peace and understanding. He doesn't just give us something to kind of scratch our heads and figure out. See, the reality is, like Pastor Jack said, John is unlike any other gospel. If you look in this book, there are no shepherds. There is no Bethlehem. There are no, uh, th- there is no manger There's no proclamation from other sources that is not talking about the lineage and the messianic uh, lineage of of who Jesus is going to come from. It is a simple introduction to the supernatural description of Jesus. This is it. This This is a cannon shot from the word go that says, here is everything. And you think about, we were singing earlier, the Father three in one. You think about the, the Trinity. This is where it gets a little tricky. And this is where if I see you dozing, I'll throw something at you because it's that important. This is not you falling asleep in a story. This is critical information to grasping the magnificence of who Jesus is. The invisible becomes the visible. The invisible all of a sudden is here. The word 
when you see the word here, that is none other than Christ. In the beginning was the Christ. And the Christ was with God. And Christ was God. And you look at that and you're thinking, it, 1 plus 1 does not equal 2 here. This is not mathematically equating. In the beginning, in the beginning of what? You have to have an object of beginning. The beginning of this is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, creation. Okay, so in the, in the beginning of creation was God. And then you start to see, John states this three times. Why does he state it three times? Because, you're okay with that, baby. By the way, we have a, we have a room now dedicated for moments of like, that's awkward. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Come on through, Juliet. <laughs> Go do what moms do. Stick to scripture, Shale says. Oh, see, I got sunburned. I'm not blushing. This is not it. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, and the word was God. There we go. Let's end. So, uh, no. the, the word is the perfect description of Christ. The word is the description of Christ. It is the perfect description of Christ. Up to that point, John knew there were, there were, there were different opinions of what the word was. Philosophically, in a religion, here's what people thought. Okay, this is what they thought. That... Um, the reality that there was something out there and it was only visible in creation. People say that we knew there was something out there. And others would say that God is a non-personal source. They would say it's an abstract principle of reason. If you were to say, what, is, what does this mean, this logos mean, this word? What does it mean to you, this God sense? The people would say, well, maybe it's a non-personal force floating around out there in the universe. And some would even say it's a non-personal um, entity of wisdom and great understanding. You see, you've got to remember, since the beginning of man, there has always been a reverence to something greater. It's a remarkable thought. Uh, you know, I, I have a, 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 something carved out of stone. It's of a shell of a turtle, and the turtle's breaking out of the shell. And the sh- the, This has always reminded me that turtle instinctively and innately knows to go toward the light, go exactly to follow that light. Nobody's there to tell it what to do. It immediately goes towards that source of life. It's kind of a reminder to me that from cavemen walls to Egyptian pyramids to Italian Renaissance philosophers to whoever, to Native Americans over here, there's always been this understanding there was something bigger. People are born with an understanding that there is a creator in any culture. And here, what John is saying is the word was in the beginning. And this has got to be, to one group, they're saying, you know, yeah, we we understand there's some kind of abstract thought. But then to another group, even the common people today, let's talk about the common peasantry who were not literate, who could barely grasp and understand what what the priests and and the rabbis were saying. They had probably no grasp of true religion. They knew there was something responsible for the way things were. They knew there was something responsible. They knew you could not have this kind of order in creation in which they lived and not have a source for it. They knew it. This would probably describe a lot of people that would say now, well, I know there's something probably out there. I mean, not this stuff can't happen by chance. Those who delve more and more into science begin to see there's more and more of a reason, of a pattern, of an amazing creation. They start to see that. So John knew it was the same thing back then. But here, when he introduces Jesus, he is introducing saying, the infinite has become finite. The eternal one, this is huge, he enters time. The, can you imagine that? The eternal one enters into time. The invisible 
becomes visible. He is saying all those things, all those, all those things that you can't grasp, they're here. And it's in a man. And his name is Jesus. All those things you've ever wondered, I wonder what God is like. Here it is. John says, let me introduce you to the fact that Lagos, the word, is not an impersonable force, but a person. He's just not a concept. He is a person. You see, Jewish people understood that term, um, the word. They knew it. So you had a philosophical group who was like scratching their heads thinking, well, this is abstract kind of guy. This is God. And you have other people saying, well, we must know who he is. He's just kind of invisible. But we know there's a creator. Then the Jewish people always understood what it meant to say the word of the Lord. Do you remember the Bible? There was like, the word of the Lord came to Moses. The word of the Lord came to this person. The word of the Lord came to the prophets and to the great fathers of our faith. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Here, in this particular case, we see the word is now given to us in a human body. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Watch these, um, watch these verses unfold. Hebrews, written to a Jewish audience here, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So you're, we hear that. You can see they're referencing many times ago, a long time ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us who? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's going to come in here in just a bit. I'm highlighting it now, but we're going to bring that in in just a bit and show you what that verse meant. That means he was at the beginning. What does that mean, Jesus was at the beginning? How could something be at the beginning that was already created? Remember, the beginning of this earth, the beginning of time as we know it. So I'm going to break that down in just a minute. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And here it is, in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay. Think about this. Go back to verse 1 if you could, Ariel, please. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. How can something be himself and also be with? How does that work? The word of the Lord is the expression of this, ready? Of God to people. The word of the Lord is the expression to say, this is God to the people. He is Jesus. Jesus is God speaking to us. Jesus is this God speaking to us. Um, I had a student one time I was meeting with at a, at a restaurant a long time ago, and he's a brand new believer. I mean, this, this kid had all the passion been brought none of the knowledge. He was about a month into the faith. And he brought his friend from work. He says, man, you know, I, I, I wait tables with this guy. Meet with this guy. Jake, just tell him about Jesus. Tell him about him. And I'm explaining things. And the guy had a question about the Old Testament. Here's what the student said. Uh, the student said, yeah, you know, um, man, I'm telling you, I got past those things. This Jesus that we follow, he's not the same as that God in the Old Testament. The God in the Old Testament, man, he was, I know he did a lot of stuff, crazy stuff. But I almost wish it wasn't there. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm waiting on lightning to strike at the table any minute. I'm thinking, no, 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 Rob, go back, go back, go back. And by the way, Rob, this guy I'm talking about, went on to Southeastern Seminary and got a, got a, got a degree and is now in ministry somewhere. And, and uh, I remember saying, no, no, the God of the Old Testament 
is now being introduced in Jesus in the New Testament. God speaking to the old to us through the Old Testament is now given an agent of speech to us as was an agent in creation this Jesus to speak to us. The God of the Old Testament is now manifest in the New Testament through his son. Are we okay? Did I mess that up? Are we okay? So here's a here's a huge grasp to understand. You have to know the God of the Old Testament has not changed. It's the God of the New Testament in, in Jesus. You see, Christ is the exact representation of the nature of God. Christ is an exact representation of the nature of God. Exactly. Not, oh, maybe a little bit. No, exactly. See, God spoke clearly, fully, and you ready for this? Savingly through his son. He just didn't come to impart, this is what I want you to do to move an army here or move a nation here. He speaks fully, completely full in everything he said. He spoke very clearly and then he spoke savingly. So here comes this Jesus who is not only going to tell us, this is my father, who by the way, I know incredibly well. I'm going to tell you how to know this God. So this, what John is saying in these first few verses are powerful. See, think about this. Christ was pure. He was eternal. And he's constant. And then he enters creation. And if that doesn't make sense with our finite minds and our feeble minds, it's because we cannot grasp the power of God. Here is a God who was, who was at the beginning of creation. Think about that. At the beginning of creation, at the beginning of time, God was. And then he enters this place. The one who is pure becomes a man. He's not a vision. He's not a supernatural aberration of himself. He's fully God, fully man. Again, two plus two does not equal four here. 100% man, 100% God. That's called an antinomy. You take two truths... And you cannot bridge with human thought the magnificence of these two truths. And so if you walk around trying to find any other illustration, forget it. There is none. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And so here, this is an important thought. Any assault on his deity is heresy. So if somebody says, well, you know, he's a good man. He's a good teacher. That's, that's heretical. And any assault on his humanity is also heretical. Isn't that crazy? The thing, you defend the man of Christ, the, 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 who he is, and this is it. This is a man who's God. Which brings me to this, and here, here, let's just see if we can break these down. I don't know where I got, I read so many commentaries, and I don't know who stole this from who. This is not my original thought, but, um, but I can't locate because every, what theologians, what do we do? We just, just you guys just steal everything from every other theologian before you, I guess. Yeah? So here it is. There's, breaking it down, this, there's a preexistence of God. There's the coexistence with God. And then you ready for this one? Here it is. Those of you who mathematically just, you know, love those kind of self-existence. So there's a pre-existence of God, the coexistence of God, and then self-existence. What does this mean? Again, let's break this down in, in, in a little bit further. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning. In the beginning. That is, we think about in the beginning, the world was created. You know what else was created that's pretty amazing? Time. The element of time was created on this earth. 
they were not bound by that time. Those of us who have family that were in Christ who are in heaven do not know the element of time of separation that we do. That's a huge comfort. That's huge. And so in Colossians 1, watch, watch these verses relate to this. Here it is. Ready? Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Stop right there. That is a powerful statement. Everything you've ever known. Everything you've ever dreamt of, everything you've ever imagined, everything you've heard from, seen, read, or listened to, everything was just owned to being created by him. Everything. Verse 17. And he is before all things. In him, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Those verses are so powerful that tell us this Jesus is responsible for everything that we know. He wasn't someone that was introduced to this earth and born in Bethlehem to say, hey, you know, you know well, wow, this is what earth looks like. Jesus was present at the creation of this world. Jesus, now think, isn't that crazy to think? Everything in which he's created, he's come to save. And everything in which he's come to save begins to push back and question him. I mean, those of you who are parents are probably thinking in your minds how many times you, you, you walked with a child through something and a child begins to question your wisdom. The kid looks at you and says, oh, what, what you, you don't know what you're talking about. And you're thinking... <laughs> I have the power to smite that out of you, but I don't. But, and you're thinking, I do, but I made you. I, I gave breath to you. And, and, and I've taught you pretty much everything you know. But yet the child pridefully kicks back and says, I know what's best. So thinking of those verses, and I was a lot of verses throughout you. Here's some thoughts. He existed before the beginning of everything that exists. What a powerful thought. He existed before the beginning of everything that exists. I love this one. This one here is. He was continuous, continuously existing already when the beginning began. This sounds like a riddle I could give a friend. But it makes sense. He was continually existing already when the beginning began. He was. He was already existing. And so when John says... Behold, this is the Word. The Word was with God. And He is God. He's trying as best He can to explain. It's all here. All your questions, all your wonders, all your frustrations of ever knowing and wondering what does this abstract God look like? He's here. And thirdly, He did not begin with the beginning. He did not. See, time began with creation. We talked about that. At the point of when everything began, he already was. And the reason I feel like I can keep hitting on that is because John hit on it three times right away in verse 1. 
he's explaining the importance of the word, understanding there is no beginning here when it comes to Christ. Okay, so remember when Jesus would reply to this question, I don't know if some of you who've been walking with Christ for a while, you remember they would ask him, who are you? And he would say, I am. Does that make a little bit more sense now? When he says, who who are you? I am. I am everything you cannot imagine. I am the creator of everything you've ever seen. I was around in currently, I was in place at a time in which you think was the beginning. I am. You talk about one of the most confident statements. When, When he says this, he says, in one time he says, I am that I am. And if you were to break that down, and Pastor Jack and his knowledge would probably, he would tell you, this is the verb to be. It goes on. It's consistent. You would ask him, where were you? I am. It's constant. There's no end. There's no beginning. There's no end. And so this confidence, when he says, this is who I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. Can you imagine the audience's hearing this doesn't grasp it? Go now look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So I don't, So it says he was God, and now he's in the beginning with God. Not only is the God eternal, but he is distant from the eternal God. And one more time. Not only is, the, is Jesus the God eternal, he is distant from the eternal God. There we go again. Now I've got this problem, right? You're thinking... How can Jesus be 100% man and 100% God? And now you're saying, how can he be God but distant from God? I mean, to be a part of God. How does that work? There's the Trinity we start to see. So you have God who's the, who's the, the, the creator, right? You have Jesus who's the agent of creation, right? That, it, I mean, and I'll show you this in just a minute. Proverbs is pretty cool. And then you're going to see the Holy Spirit who's interacting the whole time. And you see this interaction of the Trinity is magnificence, which is why one day when we get to Easter, we get to talk about the cross and what Jesus bore on that cross and his magnificence of the Trinity and how the Holy Spirit and God the Father held back watching the Son getting nailed to a cross. And you think about the majesty of creating this place and then watching that, that slaughter happen. And they held back and they refrained. I mean, it makes you understand, it makes you grasp the beauty of the Trinity. But here it is. He was with God, and he was God. Look in Proverbs 8, verses 27 through 31. This is a, a proverb that talks about wisdom, right? But watch this. Look, we read this in verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned a sea to its limit, so the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman. I was daily I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So think about this. I think we've beaten this horse up enough. There's a pre-existence with God. He's outside time and space. Right? There's the pre-existence of God. Secondly, what was that term? Coexistence with God. He is fully God. He's completely 100% God. And then, here it is, the third part, self-existence. The self-existence of God. Look at verse 3. Going back to John chapter 1. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
That is a powerful statement that if you did not believe would be the most arrogant thing you could ever read today. He's not just saying, I'm the way, the, tr- way, the, 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 way the truth, and the life to my father. He's saying anything, John is saying anything, everything, all that you ever known or will know is because of him. Everything. He's also saying he is on his own. Christ is not only a part of God, he's distant from God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. See if this helps understand. All right, here we are. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom there are all things for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. There it is again. You have God, and you have Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit. All identified, we worship them what they call the term I'm from seminary called co-consubstantially. We worship them equally. They are separate in their own way and yet unified. And so we look at this and we're thinking, here he's saying, but there is a Christ who's separate. He is together, but he's separate. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. What does he talk about, that kind of life? What, What kind of life does he mean? Think about this. This is a, this is a, this is a thought that is hard for me to grasp. The one that created the physical world that will die created eternal beings that will never die. The creation of God is a magnificent thing. This world that's going to die, this people that are going to die, is created eternal ability for people to not die. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, can you hear the heart of God? This is God speaking wholly and fully for his father. This is God speaking as if he was his father. This is, this is God, this is Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. And if you believe in me, you won't perish. You see, he didn't come just to show this is who I am. This wasn't a triumphal victory tour and just saying, look who built this place. He's saying, not only was it built by our hands, not only is it maintained by our hands, but I'm telling you, I'm here to rescue out of this place. He came to save. And so we, we see in, in, in this that all, all that exists, everything and everyone exists because they have life from him. Think about that line. The next time you're sitting across from a table at Chili's and somebody's saying, there's no way I can believe in that Jesus. There's no way I can believe in that one way of salvation. Every word they're breathing is coming out of a body that was created by Jesus. Every word they're saying. Which is why you see Jesus holding back and understanding and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's almost, he's not, he's not enlightening his father to say, you know, they don't know what they do. He, it's an agreeable conversation. God, you, Dad, you know they do not know what they're doing. And so it was no surprise. There wasn't any, there wasn't any discouragement when someone would come up to Jesus and start spouting off at all they know. He gave them breath. He gave them everything that they'll ever study, their entire being. Here it is. Which is why you always wonder, man, when is that book going to come out that's going to unravel some basic fundamental things we, we believe in? It isn't. 
2,000 years we've had the system of truth in the gospel, in, 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 this, in scripture, and in, the, in, in walking with Christ to say, here is our defense, and nothing can come out of it. I mean, sure, people write odd books, and they end up in some clearance house catalog that I get. You know, and you're like, well, that didn't hold any water. People have set out to disprove the faith, and what happens? They begin to understand. Oh my goodness, when I grasp the greatness of God, that he created everything I'm going to study. Everything. This is like being a lawyer... And going into, uh, you have a case in which you're going to present and realize that all the research you ever did was out of the book written by the opposing lawyer. You're going to sit there and think, well, I don't get it. I mean, I thought I had something new. God says, you have nothing new. Everything that has life is because of me. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The life was the light of men. The life of Jesus is the light. Jesus is saying there's going to be darkness. And John is saying the darkness won't overcome him. Have you ever gone into a pitch black room? I mean pitch black. The smallest piece of light will just light up away. I mean, inevitably, some part of the room just lights up. Think about people who've, um, who were in coal mines, who were trapped, or people who have been in disasters, and they would always say, as soon as I saw the smallest speck of light, and they would treat, uh, teach people and train people in rescue and recovery to not just move the large items when they're going after people who are buried in rubble. They said, just simply go, I mean, start scraping after the smallest thing. All they need is something, the dot the size of a pinhead to expose light. That's it. And they will see it. Darkness cannot overcome light. It cannot. And John is saying this. He says, no matter how much darkness tries, it can't overcome it. This is, but darkness will try. Darkness will do everything it can do to conspire against you. And to make you think. Man you're not thinking right. You're not thinking correctly. You can't buy into this Jesus stuff. Remember everything that's entering your mind. Has been given permission. By God to be here. The part where Jesus is going to the cross. When he talks to his father. He says father the hour of darkness is here. Darkness is moving in. And moving in and pushing. And so Jesus in his 33 years. Was, was constantly hit by, uh, by ridicule from demons. He was trying to be discouraged by people. He was trying to be arrested. Darkness moved at every possible moment. And here's a fantastic thought as we wrap up. Throughout the Gospel of John, and you will see it, and I want to break it down every time when, when whoever's preaching, you will see when Jesus is about to be arrested, they come up to arrest him, he's like, it's not the time. This is, it's crazy. Temple guards go to arrest him. He goes, it's not the time, leave me. And they, and they go back and they tell the rabbi, well, he said it wasn't time. <laughs> well, what do you mean, you moron? Go back and get him. And then there are other times in which, you know, demons would call him out. You, they start calling him by his title. Not by Jesus, who the, the Jews know him. No, you're the Christ. They recognize him. You're the Christ, you're the Christ. He's, You'll say nothing of it, now's not the time. He'd heal somebody. He, I mean, heal somebody out of death. It's, it, don't say anything. Now's not the time. 
And you see him walking through this entire pattern. Crazy. Ready for this? A creator not tied to time is now working under the element of time. And then the part that makes me, I mean, this is, this blows my mind. I've scratched out, written out, wow, pointing down in the Bible. And get this verse, horrifically sad and yet powerful when the, when the, the arresting party was going to Jesus and he's praying in the garden. Oh, he says, the hour has come. The great I am came here to speak to you and me and even endured and worked into the concept of time. And throughout John, you'll see that. But understand, he was coming to bring light. You see, since the promise of God to send a redeemer, Satan has done everything he could do to extinguish that light. John eight twelve says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does that make sense now more? When he says, I am, that he's been eternally here. When he says, when John says that he will come in a time of darkness and he is the light, this is what Jesus is saying. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He comes with all this knowledge, all this wisdom, and all the desire to save us. And for those who do not know him personally, those of you who are still adhering to the thought of, but he's got to be an abstract thing. He's got to be some kind of an impersonal God. He's got to be some kind of an energy force. For those of you relying on your own elements of belief and knowledge, look at the verse of 8.24 in John. It says this, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We aren't here to beat you up, but we are here to preach and teach the word of God. That if you were to die without the saving grace of Christ in your life, he's telling you exactly. And at the moment you would say, but, but God, I, I, I thought, I, no, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins. Not one of us is going to escape a funeral. Not one of us on this earth. Everything we have in common, no matter our social background, no matter our education, no matter where we are, not one of us will ever escape the fact that we are going to die. And so Jesus says this, I didn't come here to prove myself to you. I didn't come here to show off. I came here to bring you all the knowledge that you can grasp of who I am to show you all the love for who my Father and I have for you and to show you that you can be saved from this earth. In the darkness that's ever moved against you, I have brought light. That's the light of Jesus. That is the light of a God who saves. So there it is. As best I could break down those five verses as quick as I could to say... God is here. He has shown himself in his son Jesus. And he, as best we can in our finite ways, are telling you he is a great and powerful God. 
But before we get any further into the book of John, has there come a time in your life that you said, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you came here now to save me. Not to educate me, not to give me something to think about, not to give me another area of philosophy, but you came to save me. If that's you, what would hold you back? And if there's questions, that's normal. No, God is not saying, I want you to check your mind at the door. He's saying, I'm giving you a message that's going to take your entire life to try to grasp. That's how great he is. And so I say to you, you don't need me to lead you in a prayer. You don't need one of the pastors. You don't need... You've already been given the key agent of salvation, his son, Jesus. And do you believe that he willingly went to a cross and was nailed to a cross for your sins? Not because he had to do it any other way. He did it because of you. And then three days later, resurrects to go back to his place in perfection, a place broken away from the element of time to say, I'm home. And he did it to prove to you, to show you that eternal life is there. Do you believe? You've never trusted. See one of us just after the service. Don't wimp out. Don't lack courage. I don't want to put words in your mouth in a prayer up here. I want you to come find me. And I'm telling you, it'll be the It'll be the most simplistic, wonderful, life-changing thing you ever do in your entire life. But if it's not here, if it's not somewhere, understand these words should echo in your mind and I say them out of love. That he says, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for today and the study of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God eternal. We thank you, God, that you are the God who saves. You're the God who came after us. Lord, I just pray there's those in here who've never trusted you and never called on you as, as their savior to do that now. To do that sometime, just to pull one of us aside and, and say, I want to make that decision. Father, you know there's not a special prayer, there's not certain verbiage. Father, it's an attitude and change of the heart. And God, may we be the church that they find and feel comfortable to come to. May we be a church that they come to and say, Lord, I'm, I, need, I need to follow you. Lord, thank you for this church that preaches the word the way it does. Thank you for the men and women who've been sent here. Father, thanks for what you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, the, um, the band's not closing out in song.